I ended up tweeting out that I was laid off and the response I got was so overwhelming. And now I view getting laid off as, as truly like one of the best experiences I've ever had. The tweet itself, it was liked like six or 7,000 times. It was retweeted a thousand times. I had hundreds of DMs. Hello and welcome to the Scrimba podcast. On this weekly show, I speak with successful devs about their advice on how to learn to code and get your first junior developer job. Here, we alternate. One week, we speak with a self-taught, recently hired junior, and the next week, we speak with an industry expert so you can learn from both sides. Today's a fun one because my guest today, Madison Kanner, is a highly experienced developer who started her career by teaching herself to code and then broke into tech by doing an unpaid internship a somewhat contentious decision we're going to get stuck into. Now, there's always going to be challenges in your career, whether that's getting your first junior developer job or recovering from a layoff. And regrettably, Madison had a pretty tough run when she took a rare vacation, got COVID, recovered from COVID. And when she got back, she learned regrettably that she was laid off. Don't worry too much though, because Madison made the absolute most of it. And you're going to feel really inspired by her transparency and also what she did specifically because these are the same things that can help us succeed and thrive in the long term. You are listening to the Scrimba podcast. Let's get into it. I was in college and when I was there, I felt like I wasn't really learning any real world skills, to be honest. I was also paying a lot of money for school. So I was just thinking like, is this the best use of my time? So I ended up pausing college and trying to figure out like, what is a great skill that I could learn that would be valuable in the economy today? And so I ended up finding coding once I had left college because my older sister, Randall, she actually had gone through a coding bootcamp and she was working as a software engineer in San Francisco. I went to visit her at the tech startup that she was working at and I thought coding seemed really incredible, really valuable skill. And so it all kind of went from there. That's awesome because Randall was actually on the Scrimper podcast about a year ago, <laughs> I think. So we can link to that if people want to learn the in-depth story. I graduated college with a communications degree and I could not get hired anywhere. And I just got rejection after rejection for any type of job. About six months after that, I had my aunt email me about coding boot camps. And I thought, wow, what a scam. Yeah, graduate and get a 100K paying job. This must be fake. But oh my gosh, that's remarkable. Like you and your sister both ended up becoming developers. Yeah, absolutely. I copied her, I suppose. You know, when you're little and you have a sibling and you're like, you you copied me. So what were you studying <laughs> at college? Was it like programming related or something completely different? I didn't have a major yet. I just wasn't entirely sure what I wanted to do. And I think that's been one of my problems with college where you pick a degree and you've never really had real world experience in what job that might entail for the degree, right? Right? But then you're just kind of going through the motions. So I was kind of undeclared. I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I knew that I wanted to stop spending a bunch of money and figure out what I wanted first. Right. So I thought, okay, if I do learn later that I really want to go into a certain field and I need a degree for that, then I can always go back. But just going to college just to get some sort of degree, it just didn't seem worth it for me. Uh, and that feels more validated now because this was five years ago now. And even back then, there was kind of this mindset still of you need a college degree to be successful. And I had a lot of people at the time when I dropped out of college, I had a lot of people say, oh my gosh, now you'll never make a bunch of money. All these statistics that people throw about, you know, um, college graduates on average make more money 
money over time, make $1 million more. All of these things that have been debunked as a correlation. But at the time, uh, it was a move that a lot of people in my life were really worried that I wouldn't end up with a successful, stable career. And then today, I think it's become more normalized as we have all these different resources like coding boot camps. I think it's become much more normalized to not have a degree or to realize that degrees can be quite expensive and they won't always guarantee you a good job. Before you went to college and stuff, I understood you were like homeschooled before that, which is kind of interesting because being homeschooled, I think you're oftentimes sort of encouraged to explore things by yourself. You go against the grain a little bit in the first place. And I'm just wondering if this like early life experience made you somebody who felt a bit more equipped to teach yourself skills like coding even outside of college. Absolutely. I did think it helped because I've heard from friends that when you go to traditional school and then when you go to college, your learning path is pretty much always carved out for you, right? Because you know the steps in high school or middle school or college. There's these certain steps, like step one, you're going to class. You have a professor, you have a teacher, you have a learning plan. You know that I just need to get X grade on X test, right? Or I'm going to be broken up into a study group. So you have this really external learning plan. You have this whole system built around you. With homeschooling, uh, which I think is similar to if you're just teaching yourself how to code, you suddenly have none of that, right? And everyone's homeschool experience is different. So my little sister, for example, was in a charter school where they actually had science classes once a week in person, but it was just once a week. And so everyone's homeschool experience is different. The original hybrid model. I like that. It was the original hybrid model. Absolutely. Uh, But mine was a little different because homeschooling is kind of choose your own adventure. Everyone has a customized experience. That's why when someone tells me, oh, I was homeschooled. It was terrible. I'd never do that. I'm like, yeah, but it's customized. So that's just one experience. Another person could have a totally different experience of homeschooling. But long story short, my experience, it was very, I guess, fluid and open-ended. I didn't have a rigid study plan and I didn't necessarily have everything in place in terms of what I needed to learn. And I think just being comfortable with that ambiguity did help me when I was learning how to code, because as you know, when you start off learning how to code, even if you do go to a boot camp, a lot of it is really being a self-directed learner and you're just not going to have that external pressure, right? If you have a goal to code on the weekends, it's not the same as if you were supposed to turn in an assignment to a professor and then you get an F, right? You get kind of scolded in that regular schooling model, but when you're learning on your own, there's nothing external to hold you accountable. And so that can be tricky. I think that's very astute and it's something that causes a lot of self-taught developers to essentially burn out and stop and it's why it's so important to find something like a coding community or get involved in events and things like that if you don't necessarily have a way to meet developers otherwise. Being self-taught and having built this confidence to teach yourself. I'm wondering what advice you could share to anyone listening who's teaching themselves to code. I think there's a few things. The biggest mistake that I made was I would watch a bunch of coding tutorials and then I would never actually build anything. And I think that really held me back in my career. And you see this a lot on Twitter. You see people saying, just go build things, go build things. Don't watch coding tutorials. But really, I think you can break that down into steps that are easier. I know it's really hard to make the jump from watching a tutorial to, you know, you watch a tutorial and you're like, oh, I got this. I learned everything. Then you open up your code editor and it's a blank page and you can't do anything. That was my experience. You just become frozen and it seems really hard. Um, And so that, I guess, generally was the biggest mistake I made. And then finding ways to work around that. And if other developers don't make my mistake, like if you're listening and you're kind of stuck in that, you know, tutorial rut, getting out of that was like the most important thing, one of the most important things. I get it 100%. Like, I think one of my first exposures to learning code was watching 
watching lectures at Stanford on YouTube. And I remember learning about Booleans and like, oh, okay, that's a data type. And then naturally you learn about if statements and it was so cool, but I was just watching a video. I literally had no idea how to utilize those things to actually build something that was interesting. And luckily I figured it out, but at the same time, it's only through building stuff that you, you truly remember, learn and understand. And it's fun, right? Like it's way more fun and rewarding to actually build projects than it is just to learn the theory. I know a lot of people listening, they, because at Scrimbo, we're quite project driven and we kind of drill this in from the beginning that you shouldn't just watch, you should get involved and interact with the code. But then I know a lot of listeners, they sometimes struggle with project ideas. And even if they have project ideas, maybe they have too many, right? They're kind of like, you know, chasing two rabbits at once or maybe reaching the ceiling of their knowledge before being able to complete the project. Narrowing down a scope in order to complete the project is really tricky, I think. How did you approach it? Yeah, absolutely. It can be really tricky because you have this idea as a beginner, or I at least I did, uh, where I said, okay, I want to build full stack Instagram. And then you start up the project, have a lot of motivation, and then eventually you start losing steam and then you're struggling. And it's kind of this joke we see on Twitter where programmers of all levels have this like graveyard of unfinished side projects. And that can be so demotivating as a beginner because you're just not really finishing anything. And then on the other side of that though, it's like, okay, well, we could break this down into a small project, right? Or just do something really small. But that can also be demotivating because I would look at that and think, God, well, this is such a small project. This isn't even good for my portfolio, if that makes sense. So it's like you want to do a big project, but it's really hard to finish. And then small projects don't feel good enough. So to that, I would just say definitely start really small and don't worry about, oh my God, I'm just building a to-do list. Like this isn't great. I wouldn't worry about that at all. Maybe if you're learning React, you're saying, oh, I'm just going to build this input component. This feels really small. But the great thing about programming is like that input component that you built, you will probably build another one of those even when you're a senior developer. It's this fundamental building block of something that you're building, you know, building up a system, I guess. And so I think small projects are actually really valuable to do in the beginning for a while and then progress from there eventually where you can build bigger projects. That's kind of how I went about it. Almost like in karate or something, you kind of practice the same moves over and over again. Right. If you're building, you know, a really big project, you might not have the feedback that you need. So I did a bunch of code wars and I still do leak codes all the time trying to practice my skills. And the great thing about code wars or leak code is that you can really, you know, set a timer for an hour and you get that direct feedback, like your tests fail. And so you're able to get feedback really quickly, which I think makes you learn really fast. And I really do that kind of in alignment with this book, Deep Work, that I read. I got really obsessed with that book when I was learning how to code. I love it. It's by Cal Newport, right? Yes. And I don't agree with all of it because a lot of the things he talks about, like he has a chapter called Quit Social Media. I'm on Twitter all the time. So I I disagree with a lot of parts of those books or I've had to kind of do it my way. Um, but I think um, doing those coding challenges and then following some of his principles, I think will help you learn to code much more quickly than other people. I think that can give you a competitive advantage. I'll be right back with Madison Kanner. But first, Jan, the producer, and I have a quick favor to ask of you. Hello. If you're enjoying this episode of the podcast, the best way to support us is to share it with someone. Are you learning to code? And do you know other people who are learning to code? Well, if you're finding this show useful, they might find it useful as well. You can share it on LinkedIn, on Twitter, on Mastodon, I guess, on your favorite Discord server, or maybe even in person. With your support, we can keep doing what we're doing, and that is a weekly show with insightful and inspiring interviews coming your way every Tuesday. 
You can subscribe to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts to make sure you're not going to miss a thing. And now back to the interview with Madison. So going back a few years now, you sort of dropped out of college. But then when you realized coding was interesting, you thought, okay, maybe I don't have to go into that and pay a bunch of money to pursue this. But then, of course, you're presented with the challenge of like, okay, how do I actually teach myself how to code? Having an older sister who's a developer, I'm sure that was a resource and helpful, but there's no shortcuts here, right? Like you had to do a hell of a lot of hard work and pick a path that was going to work. How did you approach it? I really focused on first figuring out what kind of coding I wanted to do, right? And so I dabbled around maybe for too long, but I wasn't, you know, in the beginning, I wasn't like, okay, I'm going to learn JavaScript. I really looked around at different things. I looked at data science. I looked at Python. I thought that was quite interesting. I looked at all of these different paths. And then I started focusing on the one that I kept being interested in, right? Because you can pick something up and then put it down a week later. But I kind of followed my curiosity in that sense of, which is the thing that I'm most interested in. And I was pretty busy at the time because I was working full time as I was teaching myself, at least for the first uh, six months, I think. And so I think a great way of figuring out what you're really interested in is what do you still spend time on when you have no time, right? So like when you're really busy, like this year I got really busy and I found myself still reading about one specific industry, like still reading books on that and every other kind of book and every other hobby kind of fell away because I got really busy. And so like what you prioritize when you have very little time, I think that really showed me like what I was most interested in. So long story short, I started looking at front end development and learning about it. And then I started focusing on what are the general skills and how can I start building projects around those skills? And I did use different resources, but there was no like one resource that really helped me. So I definitely focused on how can I build projects and then make them more and more challenging. And then the next step was how can I dive into working so I can actually be an apprentice and I can figure out if I like doing this as a job. So those are kind of the two things, like building projects around those skills, which sounds general, but the internet has a really good job of showing you like what front end developers might do. What are some of the challenges you might encounter? They're not super advanced challenges yet, but I think there's a pretty good idea of the things you need to build if you want front end skills. Did you have some impression as to how long learning to code and getting a job would take you? And how did you kind of like deal with that just in general, shooting for something with no clear timeline or guarantee of success, that can be kind of daunting. It can be really daunting. And for anyone who is listening, yeah, I mean, if you decide, okay, I'm going to learn to code and you don't know if you'll for sure get a job, right? It's a big question mark at the end. You're taking kind of a risk. You're saying, I'm going to dedicate possibly a year, possibly two years of my life to learn a skill. And there's no guarantee that you will 100% break in, right? And that can be incredibly daunting because you're making this huge decision. And again, there's just no guarantees. Um, So I agree. That was really daunting to me. And I really looked at it as I want to get a job as soon as possible and I will do whatever it takes. Because I was at that point where I had dropped out of college and I guess I had I had a pretty big chip on my shoulder. I had a lot of people in my life telling me, oh my gosh, you dropped out of college. You're basically, you're never going to get a paying job. You might be stuck working retail for the rest of your life. Um, not that it's bad to work retail, but I had a lot of, you know, uh, type of people, family members in my life or my ex-boyfriend at the time saying, oh my gosh, no degree basically means you'll be a loser for the rest of your life. So I had a huge chip on my shoulder and I viewed it as I wanted to get a job as soon as 
as possible, no matter what it took. And I think that has pros and cons, to be honest. Yeah, there's upsides to that mindset and there's downsides too. That naturally sort of leads to the question as to when you feel like you're ready to start looking for these jobs. Some people, when they're learning to code and when they have a chip on their shoulder, it's very important to them that they land this big prestigious job or they really find their dream opportunity off the gates. Tell me if I understood you rightly, but from your description, I thought you said like you just wanted to get any job and just get your foot in the door and take it from there. How did you arrive at that kind of mindset and did it work for you? You're right that people can be kind of want to be more discerning with what they're going to choose. And maybe I should have been, honestly, but it felt like it was so competitive to be a developer with no college degree. I hadn't even gone to a boot camp. I did have what I thought was a decent portfolio, but it felt so competitive that I really thought, okay, just any job, hopefully with kind and smart people. But I really wanted any experience because what my sister had kind of told me was applying to her first job had been incredibly hard and there's just crickets. But once you have you know, even eight to a year of experience, like things start to change. Like once you have that X amount of months or a year plus of experience, everything starts to shift. And then obviously when you get to three to five years, then you have recruiters. And like even today, um, when I was recently laid off and we can get into that, uh, I had a lot of opportunities. And even in this kind of odd economic market right now, to be a developer with some years of experience, uh, there's still a lot of demand for you, right? There's a lot of places hiring that want engineers. Um, and so long story short, I felt if I just got any sort of experience and I just kind of had that for six months or a year, then I knew more opportunities would be kind of unveiled upon me or would be offered to me. You kind of hinted that maybe you should have been more discerning about your first opportunity. Why'd you say that? I was really lucky with my first opportunity. I worked with really amazing people. Some of them, they're, they're still my friends today. I worked with just really smart, kind people. But I know that, you know, I wouldn't encourage anyone, oh, just go take whatever you can get because I have heard of other people having bad experiences. And so I think I got lucky, but I know if you just take sort of any job, then, you know, maybe you're miserable or maybe it's a bad introduction to coding. And so I guess that's why maybe I would tell others to be more discerning just in case. I mean, it's just kind of a sad reality that everybody's circumstances are different as a learner developer. And I was so lucky because I was able to say, okay, mom, dad, like I need to live at home and I can't pay rent right now, right? Because I needed to study. And that's so lucky. I know not everyone is able to do something like that. And so, yeah, part of it is just luck too. You know, it could be harder for some and it could not. And by the way, like samesies, I was very lucky that my mom let me live at home to learn to code and stuff like that. I didn't have the pressures of having to do a job alongside it. And being young is kind of fortunate in that respect. You know, you just don't have the same obligations as you might have when you're older. That's why I have so much respect and admiration for developers who, who learn to code a little bit later in life. Yeah, absolutely. Shout out to Alex's mom too. <laughs> Shout out to your mom. Uh, oh, mom. <laughs> but speaking of which, like it is kind of cool that you and Randall both became developers. Was there just something in the water at home or like were your parents an influence at all? I think my parents were a huge influence just in terms of when I was homeschooled. They wanted us to really follow our passions and our curiosities. And I think homeschooling can get a bad rep sometimes, but my parents always made it clear, like they believed we could go do anything we wanted to do. So when I did tell my parents like, okay, so I'm dropping out of college and then I'm going to like live 
live at home and I'm going to learn to code and I'm going to get a really high paying job. And I, I knew nothing about coding. And my parents were like, great. Yeah. Like you can do that. That sounds excellent. Like we're excited for like the first job wherever it is. And so I think just the, the confidence they gave us um, generally was amazing. It was never specific to coding though. You know, they never sat us down and said like, you need to learn how to code kind of like, you know, parents that really want their kid to learn piano or something. And I believe that's really helpful, right? Like I've had people tell me like, how can I get my kid into coding? And I just think if you're forcing your child to do something, then they're going to end up resenting it, to be honest. And I feel that way about reading because reading is really my only only real hobby outside of coding. I absolutely love to read. I love to read history. I don't read as much as I would want, but when I was growing up, I never had any required reading. And my parents just, they would take me to the library and say, oh, you know, you can check out these books if you want. And so I kind of grew up living like, you know, Monday morning as a homeschooler, I would just want to go to the bookstore all day or I'd want to go to a library. I kind of grew up living in libraries. And so like in my personal opinion, when someone is kind of forcing you to do something, it becomes a chore. But when you have the freedom to explore what you're interested in, it can become a choice and you can get really into that thing. So long story short, yeah, I guess there was maybe something in the water. We do have a little sister and she hates coding. She always sees me coding and she's like, that looks so boring, but she just graduated from UC Davis with a STEM major. So she's more on the on the science side. That's class though. And I think you're spot on because how many times do you hear about kids who are like pushed into certain industries? They could be your friends. They could be people you've seen on TV in interviews, whatever. Like, you know, for example, a lot of pressure to become a doctor or get some prestigious job or something. I interviewed a developer who became a doctor because their parents wanted them to be a doctor. And then they realized they actually didn't like it so much and they became a developer instead. I was a doctor so I did the whole medical school thing for seven years it's a long time and I worked as a doctor for three years and it's sort of a different background but where like the pivot in my mind happened was during COVID I started spending a lot of time by myself and having time to think about things. That's Jefferson Tang and his episode is titled From Doctor to Developer we published it in April this year and I'm linking it in the show notes. I noticed that you and Randall, you both do a tremendous job at blogging, at building your personal brand, at offering value, documenting what you're learning. Is this something that like came from home or was it maybe something that like Randall inspired you to do, for example, because I think it's such a massively impactful thing to do as someone who's teaching themselves and looking to get a job without a credential, like a degree necessarily. Absolutely. That's a great question. It was definitely encouraged at home. So my mom actually bought madisoncanna.com and randallcanna.com when I was nine years old. You're kidding. And when Randall was a few years older than me. Yeah. <laughs> so, and my mom actually, she's an entrepreneur. She had first launched homeschool.com in the nineties and she sold it eventually, but she was really um, like, remember iPods and like Apple university started coming out. And this was like many, many years ago. And my parents really believed, like as we were homeschooled, they believed um, like back in the late 90s, they believed that the future of education was going to be these MOOCs, these online courses. And they believed that you didn't just need college or the traditional education to be successful. So I think my parents were just very before their time because other parents would basically, I remember like very much like thinking that's crazy. When I was 15 or 16, just walking my dog in the mornings and taking a lecture from a professor at Stanford. And it would be like, I considered this to be my real education while other parents at the time, there was just online education had a really weird 
weird, not great reputation back then. It was kind of looked at as not legitimate. Like at the time it was like, oh, you're basically going to something like Trump University. Like it's a scam. Like online education is a scam. But my parents really impressed that upon me at an early age that the internet and these online courses and having a personal brand were going to become really valuable over time. And so I remember even when I was 16, I was started blogging and thought it could be really important in the future. Just out of interest, like what were you blogging about? Was it your studies or because I started a blog when I was a kid and it was like just random stuff, you know, I'm just curious. The blog that I had, it has since been deleted because it was absolutely random things. I went back and looked at it and it was talking about how I love to play Neopets every single day of my life, which doesn't sound like someone set up for success, but I was blogging about all the games I was obsessed with playing. I was blogging about dinosaurs at one point. I had a blog where I talked about how I'm interested in crime which sounds very odd now that I think about it. Like it was kind of vague about how I think crime is really interesting. I think it was because I wanted to go into like being an FBI agent, I believe, but it vaguely sounds like I'm almost interested in breaking the law, to be honest. So lots of random things. And, you know, from there, I worked on refining it over time. And by the way, I did happen to notice that one of the most popular posts on your I assume new blog, but the blog you have today is about why you're glad you grew up playing Neopets. <laughs> Let's not dive, uh, divulge into it, but we can link it in the show notes. Sounds great. But yeah, we have to come back to the main thread of the conversation, which is about your journey into tech. And of course, at this point, you were ready to break into the industry. What was your approach? Like some people go on LinkedIn, other people rely on their network. And you know, you didn't have a piece of paper, right? And this was more important back then to sort of show you're serious, show you have the know-how, how did you go about breaking into the industry? I did something that I guess is pretty controversial to do. And it's not something that I go and recommend to other people because I realize in my case, in my opportunity, this is what worked for me, but it's not something that I'm recommending to others necessarily because it takes you know some luck and things like that. But I essentially realized that I wanted to jump in, like I needed some sort of apprenticeship, but every junior job that I looked at would say something like, you need up to a year to two years of experience. And so it's kind of that hilarious catch 22 where like you need the job to get experience, but in order to get the job, you have to have experience. And so it's this place where you're stuck. And so I realized that if I just got some sort of experience, I would be able to have more job opportunities. Um, so long story short, I decided to create an unpaid internship for myself for like 60 days, a really short period. And I viewed it as I will work as an unpaid intern for a few months, but they will be my unpaid mentor. So I wanted to find someone who would be my mentor for free. And in return, I would be an intern for free. Um, so in my eyes, it was kind of a trade and unpaid internships, a lot of different places do them. Like they're still pretty common today, but that's what I decided to do. And then once I had that first experience, experience, I knew everything would get better. Like even when I had six months of experience on my resume, I remember jobs started opening up for me, not a ton, but I would inch my way into being able to get in the door at more and more companies. So that's kind of an overview of what I did. And then again, it's not something I, you know, I would never say to someone, oh, go work for free because I know that's a very lucky place I was in. But that's what I decided to do at the time. Again, I felt like a college dropout. I felt like I had a huge chip on my shoulder and I said, I'm going to do whatever it takes and I'm okay without going a 
few months without working and I get this free mentor and I just said, I'm going to do it. I really was pretty scrappy at the time, just in terms of, I wanted to do absolutely whatever it took. Like I refused to not join tech. I knew I wanted to do this. By the way, why is it, do you think that companies are asking uh, this paradoxical catch 22 type question where you need one to two years of experience in the industry to get an entry level job entering the industry? I think it's because it is so hard to be productive as a junior developer coming in. Like there is that period of time where you need to learn a lot. And so frankly, it's just, it's hard to help out like right away. I think there's definitely a ramp up time. And so I think companies are adding these things as kind of an excuse. Obviously experience is always better or generally it's just easier if you've had a developer job before, right, to go into a new one. So I think they kind of use it as an excuse, I guess, to just try to hire people with more experience. What do you think that is? Because I could be off the mark here. Oh, I think you're spot on. It's convenience, isn't it? In most cases, years of experience will correlate to ability, even if it's imperfect. And so I think like years of experience is going to exclude obviously unqualified candidates. I think if you've ever been in the position to like post a job ad and see the responses that come in, you get a lot of crap. Like people who just apply to everything, even though it's got nothing to do with their skill, or maybe they just are not really far off enough along their journey by by most measures. And so I think it's convenient for employers, but that also means they're going to miss out on some really good candidates. And they're kind of like, okay with that by default, I think, just for the convenience afforded to them. But I also think they're aware of this. And that's why if you are a aspiring developer and you don't yet have the experience threshold, employers are open to you convincing them. And there are a few different ways you can do that. I think offering to work for free is probably the most like convincing thing because you know, you de-risk yourself completely. Like, and I don't think if you just showed up with no potential or prospects, they would let you work for free. But I think a lot of the time when you're hiring a new developer, there is an element of risk involved because they haven't yet got a proven track record. Um, But there are other ways you can mitigate that, right? For example, having a portfolio that can show that you can complete projects and it will give some indication to the quality of your code. If you've given meetup talks, for example, that can show your passion and you can demonstrate your knowledge and, you know, put a face to the name and all these good things. Yeah, there's so many different ways there. And a lot of people will get into open source, which I didn't do at the time, but there's all of these different avenues now that you can do, which I think is really exciting. And I've seen a lot of people, you know, do these different things. These 60 days or so you worked as an intern, I'm curious, do you think you accelerated your learning during that period compared to if you just stayed at home and taught yourself? Because of course, now you have mentors and you're working on production code. Absolutely. I think it was much more immersive. And we talked about me being homeschooled and being a self-directed learner. But even for me, you know, learning on your own, it's still pretty hard. Like I still am not perfect at it. And so having that external accountability all of a sudden when I was an intern or an apprentice, it suddenly made all the world of difference. I think I learned more in that two months than I had in my previous five months of studying on my own because you get into the spot where you wake up every day and there's a ticket, right? So developers usually do like agile or scrum, but you know, you have an epic or you have a feature you need to build or there's a bug and there's tickets for them. And so typically as a developer, 
I had this new experience where I opened a ticket every day and it's like, okay, fix this bug, or this is going to be the start of the future. And I had to learn how to complete that ticket or else I wasn't going to do well at my job, right? So it's this external accountability that is suddenly put on you. And I really wanted to do well. And so that just forced me to learn. And so I think that, again, not doing exactly what I did, but anyone who's listening, if you can figure out a way to give yourself that, instead of beating yourself up and thinking, I tried to learn to code so many times, you know, and I failed or I stopped for three months and I got demotivated, maybe just finding ways. It doesn't have to be an unpaid internship, but finding ways to hold yourself accountable and be in a situation where you have to learn the thing and you have to put yourself in an uncomfortable position, right? Uh, you know, different ideas. Maybe it's you do go to a boot camp, and the thing there is you have this skin in the game because, you know, if you're at a boot camp and you paid that money, you absolutely want to learn. Otherwise, you just threw away 20 grand of your own money. So, long story short, like external accountability really helps me to answer your question. You did essentially get the job at this company in the end, right? Yeah, they, they ended up hiring me. So, and that was kind of the deal I had made to them. I kind of cold emailed some startups that I liked and I kind of pitched them because I was finding no job openings for interns or, or like the junior developer jobs I never heard back from. Um, so yeah, they, they ended up paying me and I did get incredible mentorship. One of the, the guys on the team, he would just was more than happy to jump on a call and pair program with me for three hours. And like, where do you get that now? Like there are these sites that are like $100 an hour. And so this guy just really wanted to help me. And I got so much mentorship experience. It was inc- it was thousands of dollars of developer time, in my opinion. Obviously, at the time, your approach was to, to kind of work an unpaid internship. But now you've been in the industry for several years. I'm curious, like from your vantage point, watching other like juniors join your teams. And also, I know you're active in communities and things. And I'm sure you've seen a few things. What other advice could you offer to someone to sort of get their first job as a developer and feel confident to apply? Well, first I would say go easy on yourself because I think it's just gotten harder. Unfortunately, it's it's not impossible, but it's definitely gotten a bit harder as more and more people are learning how to code. You know, I was rejected a bunch of times when I was applying. And so just be easy, go easy on yourself. Like it is tough to do. I think it is absolutely doable, but it's, it's just hard. To answer your question, yeah, there's different things to do. I would focus on reading deep work because I really believe the habits in that book can give you a competitive advantage as a new developer applying for a job and then working on your skills so that those skills can be shown through a portfolio and you'll be able to get the job better. I think the next thing I would say is definitely try to figure out scrappy, unconventional ways. So like you said earlier, speaking at meetups and blogging and figuring out how you can grow your network and then being scrappy about things like maybe working really hard to try to contribute to an open source project or figuring out a way to work with someone or get a mentor, like thinking outside of the box, long story short. Those are a bunch of different ideas, but I think those would all be helpful. So number one, go easy on yourself. Number two, read Deep Work by Cal Newport. We'll link that in the show notes and I can vouch for that book as well. And number three, find scrappy and unconventional routes into the industry. Did you go easy on yourself when you were breaking into the industry? I didn't, but I guess looking back, I wish that I had. Yeah. So if I could go back to my old self, I would have told myself, go easier on yourself. Don't take it so hard because I had, when I was first applying to jobs before my internship, every time I would get a rejection or like an email, just an automated email saying no, I would take it really, really hard. And I kind of 
it added fuel to my fire, I suppose, which again has like the downsides and the upside. So I don't think I took it easy on myself, but I wish I would have. I think it could have helped me a little bit more with feeling, you know, bad about myself and having a tough time and struggling and things like that. Can we talk about that a little bit? Because you definitely, from the sound of it, had this tenacity about learning to code. I think you described it as being sort of fueled by this chip on your shoulder and determination to like prove that you could do it and be successful as you've proved any doubter wrong beyond a shadow of a doubt by now, I'm sure. I find this a very interesting subject because that sort of tenacity is very intense. It means that when you do get rejections, you might take it a bit more harshly, but it's also the reason why in some cases people are so successful. What are your kind of reflections on it a few years later? That's actually a really good point. I'm kind of telling people go easier on yourself, but in a way I was hard on myself and that allowed me to push myself much more. Maybe it is a mixed bag in that way, right? Like it's not great to be hard on yourself, but at the same time, because I was hard on myself, I was able to push myself and yeah, I just had a chip on my shoulder that I think has always driven me. And so I think any part of my success or feeling like I have a good job, there's some luck, but also just having that chip on my shoulder, um, Yeah. And I could go into that in various ways, but yeah, that makes me reflect on it a bit different based on what you said. I do see the other side as well, though, by the way, and I still think your advice reigns true. You know, intensity can't be sustained, otherwise it wouldn't be intense, right? It would be your your sort of normal level. I like this quote, which is like, long-term consistency beats short-term intensity. I was quite tenacious about becoming a junior developer as well. I had a similar chip on my shoulder. I mean, that's one reason I dig into this a little bit and I really enjoy getting to learn from your perspective as well. And the other tricky thing about reflecting on our own stories or, or learning someone's story is that we're going back many years now and I unless you kept like a detailed journal or something or vlogged it it's hard to remember exactly how things went but I do have this general feeling and memory that I was quite intense about learning to code but that also led to like periods of burnout even though it wasn't like an extreme burnout where I never got back up it, it meant that one week I was like nailing it and then the next week I was like just a bit tired and not really doing the best and I wonder if perhaps if I sort of sustained my efforts at a bit more of a consistent level, I could have found success sooner or maybe got there a bit happier and and productively. Like, you know, it's weird talking about myself in the past tense like that, but I know for people listening today, like that's your present experience, right? So finding the pace and staying determined in the long term. I've gone through periods where I was like, oh, I'm going to work really, really hard. And I always think it's sustainable at the time. And then I quickly burn out. It's kind of like doing an all-nighter when you're like, whether you're still studying all night or you're watching Netflix, I always think in the moment, oh, I'll be fine tomorrow. Like I won't burn out. And then inevitably the next morning, I, all of the sleep that I didn't have, it comes crashing back on me. Like that burnout does come. But in the moment you're, I always think like, oh, it's not going to be a problem. I'll push myself a lot and I'll be able to somehow sustain this. Um, and you just can't. Totally. Hey, since we're talking about mindset, I, I did happen to notice on Twitter a few weeks ago that you wrote about regrettably getting laid off as part of a series of layoffs at the company. And this is a wider trend in the industry. I mean, I'm so sorry. That sucks so much. Like I have absolutely no doubt that you will and are probably landing on your feet and they're going to thrive. I'm just kind of curious to hear what that experience was like for you and how you sort of managed it. But the reason why I think it's particularly relevant to the podcast here is that there is this larger trend in the industry where we're seeing big layoffs, at especially venture backed companies. And that obviously does not look great when you're not in the industry yet. You're like, people are getting laid off. 
how am I going to get into the industry? I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about what happened there and, and how you're dealing with it. I'd say even with layoffs, I still think it's a great time to be an engineer. It is definitely harder to get that first job, but I still think, you know, with layoffs, um, there is still a lot of demand for developers from what I've seen at least. And I think that will continue even through kind of an economic downturn. I still think it's a pretty, you know, in-demand job from my view. But yeah, so I was working at a startup for a little over a year. I really loved the job. I ended up having my coworkers kind of became my friends. Uh, One of my coworkers even lives where I live. We found out we were living near each other, which was pretty amazing. And long story short, I had actually gone on vacation for the first, I almost never take vacation, which is bad. I know I should, but I, I remember I went to Disneyland on vacation and I got COVID and I came back to work once I was a little better, but I was feeling pretty, oh God, like I got COVID. It was pretty rough. And I came back to the news that I was laid off. And so I remember I was sitting there on the couch and I was just told I was laid off. And I also had a really bad case of COVID. And I had spent my entire vacation just like laying in bed in pain. And it was really hard. I felt probably, it felt like one of the worst months of my life, which I know is very lucky to say it's not that bad, right? Well, it's all relative, but I felt really um, depressed about it. I've never been laid off before. I've never been fired before. So it felt like I was getting fired, right? Because in a layoff, there's a choice of who to keep and who goes. And so I remember I definitely woke up and and got the news and started crying and felt pretty, pretty upset. And I ended up tweeting out um, just a few days later that I was laid off. And the response that I got, which I can go into, like being laid off was one of the best things that ever happened to me after that response, like it, the response I got was so overwhelming and just is so incredible that now I view getting laid off as, as truly like one of the best experiences I've ever had. Please tell us more. Yeah. So I tweeted out that I was laid off and I've never really tapped into my network or my community before. I've never tweeted out anything like that. I've never hit up anyone and said, Hey, I want a referral or Hey, get me into your company. It's always been just really organically trying to make friends And so I never purposely said, I need to go tweet today or I need to go blog because then I'll have a network and then people will help me get jobs, right? Like I never thought that. I just thought I want to share what I'm learning and I'm really excited about stuff and I want to make friends. And so the internet is like a great way to make friends. Uh, So long story short, the tweet itself, I forgot how many times it was. It was liked like six or 7,000 times, I believe. It was retweeted a thousand times. And I got dozens and dozens of comments from people saying, hey, there's an opportunity here. And my DMs, I actually took a video of my DMs or I recorded it on my phone. I woke up to my DMs because I went and took a nap. I tweeted it and I was like, oh, it's a it's a rough time. You know, I'm sitting around, uh, got COVID unemployed. And I opened my phone just a few hours later. And literally, I'm not exaggerating. I had hundreds of DMs from people saying, hey, I read a blog post you did like three years ago and I'm going to give you a referral to my team at Amazon. Or I had someone, hey, I took that free JavaScript course you made in 2017. I've been following you for a while. My team over at SpaceX or Tesla is hiring or my awesome startup that just got $120 million of funding. And so I got literally dozens of referrals from people. And then I also got some strangers too that said, hey, let's talk. Like I work at a company that is hiring. So I got so many direct referrals that I still haven't been able to answer them all because it was absolutely overwhelming. And I know in many ways that I just got lucky in that sense, right? And not everyone has that experience, but I firmly believe that I got that response because I had built an online presence over time so much. And if I was not on Twitter at all, or if I hadn't blogged at all, 
I wouldn't have gotten that response at all, right? Because I know other people who aren't really online at all and they were laid off. And the only real choice is maybe hitting up a few friends or cold applying on LinkedIn. And as we know, you can cold apply on LinkedIn and nothing will happen, right? So I just took um, Jem Young, who's a Netflix engineer. Like I love his courses on Front End Masters. He was doing a course that I was watching the other night and he said that he actually applied to companies, a Netflix engineer, and he said he didn't hear back. And I think that's just a testimonial to cold applying does not work. So long story short, I absolutely believe that building a community, building a network is a great way to never be worried about getting laid off because your next opportunity can be lined up for you. I mean, first of all, I'm really sorry for the just dreadful series of events that led up to you losing your job. Like that could not have come at a worse time. But as you describe it, you know, it was almost a blessing in the end. That must have been such a staggering response to your tweets. And um, I think you're right. It's an absolute testament to, to having a network and having a community. What you did, which is quite exceptional by the sounds of it, is that over the course of years, you gave, 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 and didn't ask for anything in return. And then when you needed some help, it came to you in droves. And that's just very reassuring. Too many people, when they talk about networking, they don't even like give and then ask. They give something and then they take, or they don't even give, they just try and... And it doesn't work, especially in development communities. I think you're right. I did do that for a really long time. I, I feel like I never asked anyone for anything. I was just trying to add value and help people or give and you don't see the direct like directly how is this going to pay off for me and you're not even thinking about how, what's the payoff going to be but I think that response just showed how valuable it is to just over time like building an authentic community can be really helpful by the way if you don't mind my asking how are how are things going at the moment are you kind of looking for new opportunities are you taking people up on these uh, referral I'm, I'm sounds like you probably are to be fair um, but like just how are things going things are going great I actually this week I got six offers um so far Sick. Oh my God. Yeah, it's been amazing. I got rejections too, though, for sure. I think I've got three or four rejections as well. And then I also have more interviews lined up, like to the point where I'm going to have to say no and make some hard choices soon, right? Because offers usually they give you about a week. But things have been amazing. I'm really glad that I was laid off because now I'm just going to work on teams that seem to be, I'm even more passionate about the product, depending like on what it is. There's so many different ones. And my salary jump as of now is going to be $50,000 more. So I, I think I was paid at a pretty good rate, but I wasn't a senior engineer before. And now I've been offered some senior titles. So I guess long story short, I don't say that to brag, but I just say that to getting laid off seems like it can be a really bad thing. But I think in some cases it can work out really amazing. And you know, maybe it was meant to be in this case. On reflection, do you think that maybe you should have been like interviewing before you got laid off? What I'm getting at is that sometimes when you're in a company, you can get quite comfortable in the role and you were compensated very well, I'm sure beforehand, but it takes like a real big plunge to start looking for that new thing. In this case, the decision was made for you, it sounds like, and you don't regret it. I'm glad you say that because that is my biggest takeaway, which is from now on, even if I'm happy at a company, I'm absolutely going to be interviewing all the time. And my friend, my friend Jay will say this, he'll say, always be interviewing. And he'll talk about how interviewing is a skill and you can absolutely get rusty at that skill, right? And so for me at this startup, I had been there for a year and it was a lot of new things to learn. I hadn't been in a startup that was this startup-y before, right? Like just fast paced. 
And I really regretted that I hadn't practiced my interviewing skills because when I was laid off, I had to start interviewing a week or two later and I was so rusty. And it's good that I had so many job opportunities because I absolutely bombed some interviews, frankly. I wasn't prepared. I hadn't been practicing. I hadn't practiced those questions like, you know, tell me about a project, tell me about the trade-offs of that technology. And so I was incredibly rusty and I had to prepare by using some companies as like my guinea pigs as my homework preparation, to be honest. Um, the one thing that I did that was helpful is I do host a developer meetup where we do live code. And so the one thing that was okay was I wasn't completely terrified to live code in front of my interviewers because I had been practicing that skill. But mostly everything else, again, really rusty. And I really wish that I would have been interviewing all the time. It's funny because you tweeted a while ago, I'm quoting, it's absolutely wild that being good at interviewing for the developer job and being good at the actual job are two completely separate skills. Yeah, it is wild. And I honestly, as I've been going through the interview process, I've had a lot of lovely experiences but I really don't, I wonder if the people interviewing me could actually pass some of the challenges they've been giving me. I don't know. <laughs> like, I just think it's a very odd, like you're given a really hard problem to solve in 30 minutes and some of them, they are expecting you to completely solve it. Yeah, it is very different, right? Because when you get the job, you're given a problem and you might have hours to solve it. You might be solving it completely alone and maybe you can diagram it out or you can Google the best way to do it. But then in these interviews, it's like, okay, here, you got 30 minutes, uh, live code this problem, let's see how you break down the problem. And it just feels a bit different than on the job. Well, Madison, you are a fountain of knowledge. I've enjoyed learning about your story so much, as I'm sure people listening have. I reckon we could go into a lot more detail about what you specifically do as a front-end developer, the skills that you think are important to learn in order to become hireable, and just, yeah, your general advice to like crack the coding interview. I know a lot of listeners would like to hear that. Unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time today. But I was thinking, what if we ask people to like tweet at us if they're curious to hear a part two where we talk a bit more about how to crack the coding interview? Would you be up for that? Absolutely. I'm so excited for that. Wicked. So we'll link something in the show notes and just tweet at myself and Madison. Both our links are going to be in the show notes of the episode. And let us know if it's something you want to listen to. And I'm sure we can make that happen in the next few months. Thank you so much for joining me on the Scrimba podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Alex. This was really fun and I'm so excited about this. So thanks for having me on the show. You've heard them. Let us know if we should make the part two because there's probably a lot more useful info where this episode came from. Make sure to check out the show notes for all the resources mentioned in this episode. And if you're not subscribed to the podcast, please consider doing so. You could also leave us a five-star review or a rating on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or literally any other place that has that feature. You give us social proof and we give you a new show every Tuesday. The podcast is hosted by Alex Booker. You can find his Twitter handle in the show notes. And I'm your producer, Jan Arsinovic. If you're tweeting what you've learned from the show, please don't forget to mention Alex. He does read it all, and he also usually replies. That's it for this episode, and we will see you next week.